All right, welcome to everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, our STEM talks here. I'm Keith Nab. Uh, I'm in the uh, I teach in the mathematics department, and so this is our uh, third installment, third annual STEM talks. And so STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And so we're delighted to have uh, all of you here today. We have Mr. Jeremy Kuhn. He is a theoretical computer scientist and mathematician. His Areas of interest include complexity, uh, graph theory, and geometry, and I'm sure some other things as well. Uh, he is currently a PhD student at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and he's in the final stages of wrapping up his uh, PhD work. So I believe the end of the academic year, right? Uh, you're gonna be done, so that's excellent. So the way this is gonna work is we're gonna let Jeremy speak for about 50 minutes, uh, 50 to 55 minutes, and then we'll have about five or 10 minutes for questions at the end. Um, and then if we um, bubble over with time, maybe you get to uh, speak with Jeremy directly because you have nothing better to do, right? <laughs> um, so uh, we're delighted to have him here. Let's have a nice warm welcome for Mr. Jeremy Kuhn. Great, thanks all for coming. Uh, I'm like really excited about this. So this is great that so many people are showing up to hear me talk about algorithms. Uh, okay, so sort of, I'm going to tell you about what algorithms can tell us about life, love, and happiness. Uh, but first, I sort of want to give you an idea of what an algorithm is. Um, so OK, you might be familiar with this TV show. But in this episode, this main character, who is not very good at making friends, is trying to make friends with someone. And so his recourse is to try to design an algorithm for making friends. And so maybe here he's saying, oh, would you like to share a meal? And then based on the response, he does one thing or another thing. And it's very simple, it's very straightforward. Sort of a, a, someone with not much brain power could still follow the algorithm and get to the end. Uh, and so the point is just that an algorithm is a sequence of simple steps to solve a problem. Okay? Um, and right, so, so what kinds of problems might algorithms solve? Well, there's the kind that you think of, like maybe you'd write a computer program to compute your taxes or to do some calculus or something. Um, and there turns out to be this whole universe of very complicated, strange, and interesting problems that I see when I look at theoretical computer science. Um, and so this is the picture that you should have in your head when you're thinking of what do theoretical computer scientists think about. There's this huge galaxy of crazy and interesting things. Um, but for this talk, I'm going to give sort of a different side of the picture. Uh, more recently, like in the last 30 to 40 years, uh, people have been realizing computer science is a more and more powerful tool for studying other aspects of our life. So biology, physics, social science. Um, and I want to give you examples of uh, this, this sort of how computation can be used as a lens through which to view the rest of the world. Um, so yeah, this is the, the analogy. Um, and you might ask yourself, OK, well, you have an algorithm which is a bunch of simple steps to solve a problem. How could it possibly help me understand all of the complicated and beautiful things that I see around me? Right? It seems like it's too complicated for something that's so simple to uh, give us any intuition about things like, say, the city of London. Um, and so before I get into the examples of life, love, and happiness, I want to argue, I want to convince you that Simple steps can lead to very complex behavior. Um, so this is my starting example. Uh, this is called the game of life. It's a sort of a mathematical toy that was invented in the 60s. Uh, and it doesn't have any real consequence, except that it's 
a bunch of simple steps that lead to complex behavior. So let me explain how the game works. So there's a grid of cells, and each cell can either be alive or dead. Uh, and the idea is that the game is like, it's called a game, but it's a zero player game. So it's just a simulation of some process over time. And it's like each generation, some cells will be born and some cells will die off. And the rules for how cells are born or die off are very simple. So if a cell has exactly three neighbors and it's not alive, it will be born in the next round. Okay. If a cell has too few neighbors, okay, so by neighbors, I mean look at the eight squares next to it. So, so this one has exactly three uh, neighbors, so it'll be born in the next round. Uh, this cell, however, has zero neighbors, and so due to like underpopulation, it will starve out and die. Uh, and if you have either two or three neighbors, you will survive onto the next round. But if you have more than three neighbors, you will die off. Okay, so it's just a couple of simple rules, uh, and I'm going to show you an animation for, for how this goes. Okay, so let me do this. Okay, so here is an example of the game of life evolving over a few rounds. It starts with sort of a simple pattern, and you can see that the pattern gets bigger and more complicated, and then eventually it dies off. I'll let you guys watch it one more time. So it starts off pretty simple, and this is all just happening due to these simple rules for how to go from one generation to the next. Okay, so that was kind of cool, but you might not be very impressed, right? Like, this, there's a big gap between some patterns like this and the city of London. Okay, now let me give you uh, maybe a more convincing argument. Um, so here is a video of the game of life, and what's happening in this video, I haven't started it yet, but what's happening is we're zoomed in very close on one region of the whole world, and we're going to zoom out, and as we zoom out, you will see some very complicated things start to happen. So. Uh, remember what this looks like at the beginning, and you'll see something cool at the end. And as it zooms out, uh, it's going faster and faster because it takes a long time to see this behavior arise. Okay. Zooming out. Right, and all of this stuff is just the rules for how to update from one generation to the next. Yeah, okay, if you missed it, if you remember what happened at the beginning, it was exactly this picture, but at a much smaller scale. In other words, the rules of the game of life are complicated enough, or at least they have enough complex behavior at the macro scale, that they can actually encode it, their own rule set if you just are clever enough and can come up with this, right? So, so this picture that you're looking at right now is exactly um, the first frame of the video. Right? Just at a bigger scale. Right? So this is pretty cool. 
Um, but you still might not be entirely convinced, right? Okay, the game of life is complicated enough that you can play the game of life, but you're still not convinced. Now here is an amazing fact. Um, the game of life turns out to be a universal computer. So what this means is anything that any computer could possibly compute, or anything that any human could possibly compute, can be done with the rules of the game of life. That means that with the game of life, you could write uh, a computer program to do your taxes, or you could do calculus, or you could watch cat videos on the internet. So the game of life can do anything that can be computed, which is why it's called a universal computer. Okay, um, But you might notice that it's not very efficient, right? In order to get the game of life inside the game of life, we had to like zoom out for a whole minute, and it was probably running a few hundred million generations just to get from one step to the next. So this was not an efficient algorithm, and that's why we sort of don't care about it in real life, and it's just a mathematical toy. So for the rest of the talk, what I'm going to do is I'm only going to talk about efficient algorithms and the complex behaviors that can arise um, from these algorithms. Okay. Okay, so now we're getting to life, love, and happiness, and we're going to start uh, with love and happiness. Okay, so this uh, topic, I'm going to talk about stable marriages. So what is a stable marriage? Um, well, imagine that you have a bunch of women and a bunch of men, and they are dating, right? And they want to figure out who they should marry. Um, and for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to just do four women and four men. Um, and so uh, they want, what we want to do is we want to match the women and the men uh, so that each woman is matched with one man and each man is matched with one woman and so they can get married, fine. Um, and to make this concrete, what we know is each woman is going to have a strict preference over the men. So say this woman on the left uh, prefers uh, John Lennon the most and the other Beatles less or whatever. Uh, and, and likewise, so each woman has a different preference on the men and likewise each man has a list of preferences for the women. Okay, is that clear? Um, and the question is, how can we match up the men and the women so that everybody is, well, happy? Maybe happy, right? Uh, you can notice that it's not necessarily going to be true that everyone will get with their top choice, because if I like John Lennon the most, but John Lennon thinks that I'm repulsive, then one of us is going to be unhappy. If we're together, then he's unhappy. If we're apart, then I'm unhappy. So someone is going to have to lower their standards to come up with uh, a marriage like this. Um, but we can come up with sort of a better notion. So um, suppose that at the end of our algorithm, we've come up with a marriage, and Kanye West is married to this person right here, and this Frankenstein monster, and Kim Kardashian is also married to a Frankenstein monster. Now, it might be the case that both of the Frankenstein monsters are very happy, right? Because who wouldn't be happy to be married to one of these people? Uh, but as we all know, uh, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West would prefer being married to each other over the Frankenstein people. So, so what this is called is an unstable pair because Kanye and Kim Kardashian both have a mutual incentive to cheat on their spouses, and they will be both happier for this. Right? So we call this an unstable pair. And the goal of our algorithm is to come up with a stable marriage so that there's no unstable pairs. Right? That are, that's what it means to be a stable marriage, is that none of the pairs are unstable, so nobody has a mutual incentive to cheat uh, or to go outside uh, our matching. Does that make sense? OK, so um, the question is, is there always a stable marriage? And if there is, can we find it efficiently? 
Uh, it would be pretty silly if the answer was no. Like, I don't know why I'd be talking about it. But uh, before I tell you why the answer is yes, let me explain some very interesting applications and variants of this problem. So you might think there's an interesting application to dating, but dating turns out to be really complicated. So uh, the applications are to other things. So um, if you take, so these are a bunch of medical students. And at the end of their medical school, they need to pick some hospitals to do a residency at. right? And each student will have maybe some different preferences over which hospitals to do their residency at. Maybe they like certain cities better than others. Uh, and each hospital will have preferences over the students. They want to get the best students they can get. Um, and so you can see how this is uh, sort of a stable marriage problem. The only difference is that hospitals can have many residents, but each resident can only go to one hospital. But it's basically the same problem. Um, another example is schooling systems. So um, in the Boston public schools, they actually do this, where students are matched with schools. And maybe students have preferences over which schools they want to go to. And maybe schools are not allowed to have preferences over students. Maybe they are. It's maybe not entirely clear. But you can see how it's a matching problem. You want to match students to schools. Um, and the last one is kidney exchanges. So um, you can imagine that a kidney has a very strong preference on which person it's transplanted into, because you need correct blood types and all that things. Uh, and maybe the people don't really care which kidney they're getting as long as it's functional. Uh, but you can see it's a matching problem, kidneys to people. So there are all these matching problems that come up uh, throughout all of social science and medicine and all these things. Uh, and we want to make sure that like black markets for kidneys don't come out of nowhere, right? We want to make sure that all this stuff is done according to the rules, and that will sort of make everything nice and stable. Um, and so these two guys, so the man on the left is, uh, or sorry, the man on the right is Alvin Roth. He's a uh, professor of economics at Stanford, and the man on the left is uh, Lloyd Shapley, and he actually invented the stable marriage problem back in the '60s. They won. They both won the. 2012 Nobel Prize in Economics for taking these matching problems and solving them in practice. So they solved the resident matching problem, they solved the kidney exchange problem, and they solved the public schools problem, uh, all basically using the same idea of a stable marriage. Uh, and they won the Nobel Prize for it, so that's pretty cool. Um, OK, so now let's actually get to the algorithm of how to find a stable marriage. The name of the algorithm is deferred acceptance. And the idea is that you might have a bunch of people who say they want to be married to you. And rather than pick one person and accept them, you just reject all the people that you don't prefer. Okay, So let me run through an example of this algorithm. So here on the right, we have men. And on the left, we have the women. And what you do is you pick one side to be the side that proposes. Okay, And so for this example, the women will propose. And the women will start by proposing to their top pick. Okay, And they will line up in front of their men. And uh, the men then get to decide whether to reject anybody. And if a man only has one woman proposing, then they will do nothing. Uh, but any man that has more than one woman proposing will then reject the least preferred women, all except the most preferred. So, so they will keep the most preferred woman sort of what on, on standby right, and not say anything to them. Uh, but they will reject all of their least favorite women. And the reason for this is because now the women who are rejected, they will go back to the left. They will look at their second pick. And then they will go propose to their second pick. And their second pick might actually prefer the new proposal over the old one, which is why they deferred the acceptance until later. So now there's another round of this proposal and rejection. 
the, the rejected person will go back to the left, pick their next top pick, and then once there's a round in which nobody is rejected, that is the, the marriage. Okay? And you can actually prove mathematically that this algorithm always produces a stable marriage no matter what the preferences are, and it does so efficiently. So um, I think the, the national resonant matching program, the, the resonant one, I think they, they usually leave like a week for the algorithm to run to figure out this matching for some large thousands of students and uh, hospitals. And I'm pretty sure that the algorithm really only takes like five minutes to run, but they leave a week in order to iron out any strange artifacts that arise. Okay, so fine. This algorithm always works, and it always produces a stable marriage. Um, and this is great. You can use this to solve a bunch of problems. Uh, there's one sort of question that you might ask. Uh, can you sort of game the system? So if you know which algorithm is being used to match residents and hospitals, and you want to improve your outcome, can you do that by lying about your preferences? Right? This is an interesting question. I'll let you think about it, uh, and we'll move on. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, the reason is because people have spent like 30 years thinking about this question in different contexts, and the answer is not very easy. Um, okay, so now we're going to move on to uh, life and unhappiness. Um, so I'm going to describe a model of segregation that was due to shelling from the 80s. Um, so, uh, okay, so historically, we all know that segregation is terrible, right? But somehow, housing segregation still happens, right? Like, we all know this in Chicago. It's one of the most segregated cities in the country. Um, but if you ask any individual person, they will tell you that they don't feel like what they're doing is particularly racist, right? They don't feel like any of these things are, like they're not doing anything, it's just the system. It's sort of unclear why housing segregation happens um, in this context. Right, okay, housing segregation is very, very complicated. But this raises an interesting question that you can answer mathematically. Is it possible in a world where nobody is overtly racist, could you still get housing segregation in such a world? Okay, and so now I'm going to answer this question for you. Um, and it's going to be a lot like the game of life. So we have a big grid of cells, and some cells are inhabited, and some cells are uninhabited. And the two inhabitants can be one of two types. They can either be blue or yellow. Um, and then each day you wake up and you look at the neighboring cells, and you become unhappy if you realize that fewer than a third of your neighbors are the same color as you. So it's not that you want to be in the majority, it's that you just don't want to be really lonely. Okay? And if you find yourself lonely one morning, you will move to a new random location right? in the hopes that you will be happy. Um, okay, and so let me give some animations of this in action. Um, actually, there's a great uh, oops, online. Ooh, okay, I need to make this a little smaller. Okay, great. So, um, this is a couple different runs of the same algorithm. So you have the yellow triangles and the blue squares. Um, and they're moving if they're unhappy, right? If fewer than a third of their neighbors are the same color as them. And so we can start with a random board and run the algorithm. And you see very quickly the amount of segregation in this made-up world uh, goes up quite quickly, right? Even though nobody individually is being particularly biased, you might argue. Okay, so let me just pronounce this effect even more by showing you the same simulation, but now when everybody prefers to be in the majority. So they'll be unhappy if fewer than half of their neighbors are the same color. 
uh, and it will turn out to be even worse. So it takes a little bit longer, but you'll see the amount of segregation goes up. And just by looking at the map, you can see there's like practically no people of different colors living next to each other. Right? So this is pretty depressing. Um, right? Uh, if we think about what this says, it says that even a small bias can lead to systemic housing segregation in this model. And if you look actually at some of the, re so like if you take this model and you look at the statistics that it predicts for how people should be living and what the, what the makeup of neighborhoods will look like, and you compare that with the statistics from actual cities like LA and Chicago, it turns out this model is surprisingly accurate. Right? So even though people don't actually move around randomly and they don't actually get unhappy when exactly less than one third of their neighbors are different, it still turns out to be pretty accurate in terms of the effect of this model. So that's pretty interesting. Um, but thinking algorithmically, this small bias can cut both ways. Right? So a small bias can lead to segregation, but a small bias can also lead to integration. So let me give another final animation for this. Um, so here, in this example, you will move if too few of your neighbors or too many of your neighbors are the same color as you. So now it's that you don't want to be lonely, but you also don't want to live in a homogeneous neighborhood. Right? And in this case, very, very quickly, you see almost all of the segregation goes away. And everyone is living next to everyone, and everyone is happy. Right? So if we sort of wanted to take a lesson from this, well, the policy issues are much hairier than the mathematical issues. But we could, if we wanted to cause large changes, global changes, we could, instead of trying to you know, be social justice warriors for everything, one possibility would be to give a small bias in favor of integration. And this model would predict the problem might solve itself. Might solve itself, right? There's a gap between math and the real world. Uh, but the point is that small local changes in attitude can cause a global shift in behavior, uh, even though there's it's confusing exactly how the connection goes from local to global. Okay. Um, so now I want to switch gears and talk about the last topic, uh, which is life and love. Okay. And we're going to talk about evolution. Um, and before I get to the meat of the algorithm, uh, I want to give you a little story. Because I think the algorithm is not as impressive unless you hear the story, because it goes back uh, a few hundred years. Okay. So this is Charles Darwin. Uh, he's commonly referred to as the father of evolution. But uh, when I started reading about this, I realized uh, pretty quickly that he was not the first one to think of evolution. Actually, uh, these two guys, uh, along with many others, so Erasmus Darwin was Charles Darwin's grandfather, I think, and J.B. Lamarck was also around the same generation. So they were a couple of generations before Darwin, and they already agreed with all of their peers that evolution was the right thing, right? Evolution was how species evolved and grew over time. Um, and there was this third guy, Charles Babbage. He has a, a near and dear to my heart because he is the inventor of the first mechanical computer, right? So it kind of looked like this. He didn't actually build it, but he designed the plans, and then later people decided to build it. Um, yeah, you like, you like set the rotors to certain numbers, and you turn the cranks, and it solves your calculus problems for you. Isn't that cool? Uh, okay, fine. So uh, this guy, um, Charles Babbage, was also a religious philosopher. And I'm paraphrasing this quote. 
Um, but he basically said this, that God didn't create species of animals, but instead he created the algorithm for creating species. Um, so you can see this was uh, already a few generations before Darwin, and they already believed that evolution was operating according to some algorithm that maybe we could know and understand. Uh, and then we get to Charles Darwin again, and his book on the origin of the species caused this huge wave because it put forth the actual details of such an algorithm and how the algorithm might work, right? So you have combinations of genes from two parents, uh, there's mutations, and only the fittest survive, right? These were the three sort of principles of, of evolution as Darwin understood it. Uh, but there were a couple of big looming questions that Darwin didn't understand. So here are sort of the two biggest questions. The first one is, what is the role of sex in evolution? So why do animals have sex to reproduce instead of reproducing asexually? I'll come back to this question because it turns out to be a big problem. Um, and the second question, why are species so diverse? When you look around you, if only the fittest organisms will survive, why do we have birds and bacteria and fish and humans all living together? It doesn't really make sense because one of them is going to be more fit than the others for their environment. Um, so, so it turns out that Darwin did not understand sex, or at least he did not understand sex in terms of biology, evolutionary biology. Um, and if you fast forward a few hundred years, you get all of these huge advances in science, right? They, we have Mendel, the inventor of genetics. We discovered the structure of DNA. We discovered molecular evolution and epigenetics and all of these crazy, amazing things. But none of these things explain sex. So, so this was a quote from 1982, which is still very recent and still sort of agreed that sex is the queen of problems in evolutionary biology. Nobody can explain it. In fact, I think, did I, okay. So uh, Charles Darwin even said in a personal letter that he doubted his own theory because it did not explain sex. So he's, I think the quote was that the human eye to this day gives me a cold shudder because he had no idea how sex, which seems like such a strange thing, could explain something so complicated and interesting as the human eye. Um, and now I'm going to explain why sex is confusing. Um, so imagine, so there, there are two sort of different arguments. The first argument is imagine that you had, by chance, the perfect organism, right? And for this, Denzel Washington is the perfect organism, okay? So he has perfect genes, perfect teeth, perfect everything, right? Uh, and he's going to get married to another, you know, he's going to have a hundred million kids and they're going to take over the world, right? Okay, the problem is that Denzel Washington has to combine with another human and so the children are necessarily going to be suboptimal, right? If he is the perfect individual, his children will only get half of his genes and they won't be perfect, right? So if nature had a really good algorithm, then it would take the perfect individual and it would just clone itself a hundred times or a thousand times and take over the world, right? This is what should happen if survival of the fittest actually makes sense, right? So if reproduction were asexual, the perfect person would take over the planet and there would be no other life forms. Um, a second problem is one of preservation, right? So if the goal of evolution is to preserve your genes, then sex seems like a really terrible way to do that. Why is it so terrible? Because uh, first of all, it's hard to find another mate, right? It's probably easy to just, you know, cut off your arm and have it grow into another human being with the exact same genes, but it takes a lot of work to find a partner. And moreover, 
uh, when you have children, they only get half your genes. And worse, you don't even get to pick which genes they get. Right? So you can't even guarantee they get your good genes. They might get your terrible genes. They sort of, the genes get chosen essentially at random. And so this seems like a really bad way to preserve something which is good. So sexual reproduction seems like a very bad way to preserve your genes. Um, and so, okay, so I've now described sex and you're starting to think about it like this broken bicycle. Like how could it possibly do anything useful? Um, but at the same time, we look around us and we see all of the things that evolution via sex has provided for the world, right? And so the question is, if sex is actually what we're doing, which I think it is, uh, then what algorithm, when combined with sex, could possibly achieve all of the diversity and, and fitness that we see around us in the world? Okay, so uh, this guy claims to have an answer. So this is Christos Papadimitriou. Uh, he's a professor of computer science at UC Berkeley. Uh, and he'll excuse me if he's watching the video because I took some of his quotes from the other slides. Okay, so he tells a much longer and more detailed version of this same evolution story um, because he's been studying this for like the last 10 years. Um, and so he claims to know what the algorithm is. And through two short detours, I'm going to try and help you understand what the algorithm is doing. Okay, so the first detour is into optimization. So imagine that you find yourself in this vast landscape and you want to find the tallest hill and you want to get to the top of the tallest hill. So one thing that you can do is you can, and maybe, maybe like you're nearsighted so you can't see very far. So maybe what you do is you look around, you look at your uh, uh, current altitude and you look uh, in a small circle around you and you see that if you step over here you will be slightly higher in altitude than you were before. And you just keep doing that. And eventually you will get to the top of some hill it might not be the tallest hill. Uh, and then what you can do is you can just start over by starting at a random location. So this is called gradient ascent, uh, or just randomized hill climbing. Uh, and it turns out that uh, this is actually a pretty good method for climbing or to, for finding the tallest hill. People use it in all kinds of problems in optimization and in industry to design cars and all of these things. And it's a really great method. Um, but if you think of the analogous, so like this is like, evolution is trying to find the fittest individual, and the fittest individual is at the top of some hill. Right? So this is the analogy. Um, and so if you think about it, asexual reproduction would be like one person cloning themselves and hoping that their clones will land close by on a higher elevation. Right? And then their children will clone themselves, and they'll get even higher, and hopefully you will get to the top of some nice hill. Right? This is what asexual reproduction would be like for solving this hill climbing problem. Sexual reproduction would be a little bit stranger, right? It's like I'm standing over here and someone is standing way over there and we combine our genes and our child is somehow standing way over there, right? So let me, let me do this with an example. So here are two people that are going to recombine their genes in the hopes that their child will be more fit for the environment. And maybe uh, the genes will be how far they are in the horizontal direction and how far they are in the vertical direction. Uh, and when you have a child, they get one of each of your genes. So this is like moving over to this location. And then there's some random mutation. And then this is their child, right? And the question is, uh, sexual reproduction is supposed to tell us that this child is going to be maybe more fit for its environment than the two parents. But if you just look at this picture, that doesn't really make any sense, right? So, so OK, so we have this hill climbing problem, which is like finding the fittest organism by doing evolution. Um, 
Right, and I said already that the asexual version works really well in practice, and this sexual version turns out not to work very well in practice. Actually, it has a name. It's called genetic algorithms. So if you're interested in this sort of thing, you can go look that up. Um, and so the question is, sex is clearly not optimizing just for fitness of an individual. So what else could it possibly be optimizing for? Um, and the answer that was proposed by Christos Papadimitriou and his colleagues is that sex is optimizing both for fitness and also for mixability. So uh, you want your children to be able to perform well with a variety of other people, right? You want the population as a whole to have lots of variants. And one, one way you can sort of explain why this makes sense is because if you have a population of all Denzel Washingtons, and there is some virus that mutates itself to be really good at getting Denzel Washington sick, then you wouldn't want the whole population to die out, right? It seems like a good thing for nature to promote diversity so that if something changes, then the variance in the population will cause some people to survive at least, right? You want people to be able to mix well and get lots of variation. Um, okay, and so here is actually the algorithm uh, that, that works for this. Um, and let me, okay, this is the second part of the detour. So the second part of the detour is this problem I'm about to describe. So say that uh, there are a bunch of financial experts and they are trying to convince you to give them money to invest for you, okay? Um, and your goal is to find out who the best expert is, right? Who is going to be the most reliable at giving you financial advice. So every day you will pick some expert and you'll give them $1,000. And at the end of the day, they will tell you either they made you a thousand more dollars or they lost you a thousand dollars. And you do this many, many times, and you try to figure out who the best expert is. But you also don't want to lose a lot of money in the process. Okay? So uh, here's an algorithm that solves this problem, and it's very simple but also very amazing. And it's so amazing that it's been discovered by computer scientists five or ten times in the last fifty years and has been forgotten. So. <laughs> This is, that means it's a very amazing algorithm. Um, and it's been discovered in many different contexts as well. So, okay, uh, right, so the goal is to do as well as the best advisor if, in hindsight, you knew who the best advisor was and just picked them every time. So this is like, you want to minimize your regret. Um, okay, so what you do is you assign a number to each of the advisors. And the numbers start out being the same. Um, and what you do is, you pick one of the advisors at random, right, according to how big their number is. And then you give them $1,000 and you see what the result is. And then at the end of the day, you know how much money you've made. And you want to update these numbers uh, by some multiplicative amount. So I'm saying you pick some small number and then you multiply it by the amount of money that you made or lost. And then you add that to one. So it's like one plus or minus a really small number. And then you update the, the number by multiplying. So I'm going to call these numbers weights because it's like how much faith I'm putting in this expert as a financial advisor. And if they make me money, I'm going to increase their weight. If they lose me money, I'm going to decrease their weight. And then in the next round, some of the weights will be bigger and some of the weights will be smaller. And when I randomly pick an expert, I'm going to randomly pick it proportionally to how big the weight is. So if this expert has a really big weight, I'm more likely to pick her than I am to pick one of these small weight experts. Okay, so this is like me learning and then updating my beliefs according to uh, what I'm seeing. 
Okay, and if you keep doing this over and over again, maybe some of the weights will turn out to be overwhelmingly large, and then at the end of many days, you say, okay, this is my expert who I think is the best, I'm just going to follow them from now on forever. Okay, so it turns out that you can actually prove that this algorithm always will solve this problem. It will always find uh, the best expert, and it will do it pretty quickly. Uh, and this algorithm is called the Multiplicative Weights Update Algorithm. Okay, so you, get, you have a bunch of weights, you update them by multiplying them, right? So, okay, it's a very not so exciting name, but it's a very exciting algorithm. Okay, and now let me explain how this algorithm relates to evolution. So now you imagine that evolution is this game that we're playing with the experts, and the genes are the experts that are advising you what to do. And they're each advising you that you should use a different variant of that gene. So like the gene could be like blue eyes or green eyes or brown eyes, and the recommendation is saying your organism will do really, really well if they have blue eyes, so pick blue eyes. Uh, and then the reward at the end of the day, once you pick the experts to follow, is how fit the organism is. And then, <laughs> so and then the, the weights on each gene correspond to how frequently the, uh, the variant of a gene shows up in the population. So if there's more people that are brown-eyed, then the brown-eyed weight would be much bigger. Okay? Uh, and then finally, you do this multiplicative weights algorithm for each generation. You update the weights of the genes. And then you use sex to recombine the individuals. Okay? And this is the algorithm. You just do this for many generations. And you will find out that, uh, so you can actually prove this. This is a theorem in one of Christos's papers that sex optimizes, sex with this multiplicative weights update optimizes both the fitness and the mixability of an organism. And together, all of this, you can show that you get lots of variation in your population, you get new species coming out of nowhere, and you get a pretty good average fitness for the whole population. Okay, so, all right, great. Um, I've gotten sort of to the end a little bit early, uh, but what I've done so far is I've shown you three examples of how computer science and algorithms can be used to study phenomena that don't seem like they are related to math at all, right? So we saw, um, we saw the stable marriage problem, which was allowing us to say something about economic situations and markets. We saw the uh, segregation model, which told us something about social science and uh, human biases. Uh, and then we saw this evolution model, which showed us, gave us a better understanding of how sex plays a role in evolution. Um, okay, so I hope that you will now go off and read all about these cool algorithms. Uh, any questions? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I have a microphone for questions so that we all can hear. Mm -hmm. So if math can determine a lot of the problems we face and can help us answer a lot of questions that normally wouldn't be associated with it. Um, but isn't math just a reflection of observation? So if you're, so if you observe something, then you have to make of a certain phenomenon like how does a, how does a star work? You've got to come up with the math to solve how that star works. But that depends only on your perspective. Surely. Um, so um, I think the, the sort of 
novel thing now is not that just we're using math to describe theories, like about how a star works or about um, how plants grow or something, but now we're actually uh, coming up with algorithms which you can explain phenomena. So you can explain why a star works the way it does or why evolution works the way it does, which is um, a remarkably different approach from most of applied math, which is just describing what is happening accurately. So the difference is whether we can model our observations accurately, which is sort of traditional applied mathematics, and here it's whether we can come up with algorithms that give me a convincing explanation for why things are the way they are. Does that answer your question? Yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, we can talk after, maybe. Yeah. Other questions? All right, I'm coming up. Um, for the question about uh, the algorithm about the marriage, mm -hmm. um, what will happen if you find, uh, like, an, let's say, a person or an organism that does not follow the algorithm? Let's say, like, this, uh, per perhaps a man or a female that uh, it's like unloyal or just like wants to mate with anyone they can. It's mm -hmm. not a choice of preference. Like, how will that affect the algorithm or explanation toward, mm -hmm. like? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so, so there's sort of two questions in there. One, what happens if someone someone's preferences change over time, and then you can't really say anything, right? Because if someone changes their preferences, maybe there will be an incentive to cheat. Um, so this is a big question of you know, what happens if preferences change over time. And I don't think this is actually, um, so there's been some very recent work about what to do if preferences change and how to maintain an approximately stable matching if you're allowed to change the matching over time. Um, but the sort of, I think the more interesting question is what happens if people just don't follow the rules? Right, of this algorithm. Uh, so it turns out that uh, uh, what people use this for is they take this algorithm and then they encode it actually in a computer and they ask each person for their preference and then they have the computer do the matching and then people are expected to follow the outcome of this matching. So it's not like you actually have people going around proposing to each other. Um, well, in fact, that's actually how the resident matching used to work. So the medical students would sit by their phone and they would get calls from the hospitals saying, we want you to be our student. Call us back in 30 minutes to decide if you're going to spend the next four years of our life at our hospital. And then they'll put the phone down and you're supposed to talk with your spouse or whatever about whether you want to go there and then call them back and make decision. And there were all these problems of people going outside of the algorithm and like making like back channel cash deals and all of these crazy things and like calling two applicants at the same time and so, so in order to sort of get rid of these problems of people not following the algorithm, uh, they, they encode it in a computer, and now they just ask the hospitals and the medical students what their preferences are, and then they run the algorithm and they give them the results. Um, but yeah, there's, there's really nothing that you can say about, uh, I mean, if everyone is being honest and the preferences don't change, this will be pretty good. But if any of these conditions are violated, then things might go awry. I guess that gives them a job, right? <laughs> um, will, will algorithms and computers eventually like, be able to solve problems, like engineering problems, to where there won't be like, engineers or other jobs anymore? Like, couldn't you just put those type of things into an algorithm or computer where it would make the human job obsolete? Yeah, so actually this, this is already happening with uh, a lot of problems. Um, 
But when I, so at the beginning of the talk, I showed you that big picture of the galaxy. Uh, so it turns out that sort of the overwhelming majority of problems that we know about, we believe computers cannot solve. And they're all sort of connected in sort of an interesting way that says that uh, if we really can't solve one, then we really can't solve any of them. Um, but a lot of these, um, so a lot of like, um, like, I mean, let me just give you an example. Like say uh, Amazon has to figure out what the right shape for a box is when they're sending you a particular item. And this is, they actually use an algorithm to solve this problem, but uh, it's not always going to solve the problem perfectly. Um, and so on, on one hand, this gives some room for humans to still have jobs, uh, which I guess is nice. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, but on the other hand, there's this question of, like, you can't guarantee it will always work, but maybe it will always work because that we're only shipping books or something. Like, so the question is, what's the difference between the mathematical guarantees of saying this won't work in the worst case and the real world guarantees, like, can we make sure this algorithm will always do well? Um, and this is sort of an open area of research. And I think until we answer a question like this, we can't say whether humans will ever be completely replaced by machines for these industry problems. Other questions? Yeah. Uh, do you think algorithms can completely replace human personality to the point where algorithms can predict and dictate our human emotions and feelings? No. <laughs> I mean, this is like a common thing that you see like in the, in, I don't even know where you see it. People in the news are like afraid that algorithms will do our dating for us or, or that algorithms will like be able to like see our Facebook profile and tell when we're being sad. Um, but uh, I mean like humans are really, really complicated and they don't always act. So, so in aggregate, if you look at statistics, humans are very predictable. But if you look at individual humans, I think computers still have a pretty long way to go. Um, and I don't personally think that they'll ever get to the point where they can predict our emotions very accurately. But this is more philosophy than math. <laughs> so I'm a little um, curious about what you mean by the, like, just the fundamental limitation of an algorithm, how there are certain problems which are just seem to be physically or mathematically impossible for mm -hmm. an algorithm to solve. But how could that be if there are also problems that we can solve? You know, what separates um, what separates a problem that can be solved by um, just these mathematical rules that we put into an algorithm from one that can be solved by our intuition, whatever that may be? Yeah, this is a very good question, and actually, it's it's very deep. The father of computer science, who's Alan Turing, uh, he actually thought about this question before computers were ever invented. Uh, and he has a thesis which has held up for, uh, since he thought of it. And his thesis is called the Church-Turing thesis. And it says that any problem which can be, or anything which can be computed by any computer can be computed by the computers that we understand them today. Um, and he sort of grouped, this is again kind of philosophy, but he sort of grouped in with this anything that humans can compute if you give them a piece of pencil and paper and their intuition. Um, so, so sort of the working thesis uh, is that humans are not more powerful than computers, um, even given their human personalities necessarily. Um, but yeah, I guess that's very different from saying can a computer understand a human's emotions? Uh, and yeah, maybe the problem is just that we don't know how human emotions work well enough to encode it as an algorithm. Um, but I'm sort of skeptical we will ever know that. Other, other questions? 
Can I offer? Oh, okay. go ahead. Amy. just wondering if you could give some of our students a, some perspective of how you got into this area, sort of your educational background and where you, kind of what your graduate school is sure. and, and where you would Yeah, um, so, so originally I was interested in writing computer games. Uh, <laughs> so this is how I was in sort of uh, high school and a little bit in undergraduate. Uh, and so I went, I went to a state polytechnic school in California that was basically they trained you to go work at Amazon or Google or Facebook as a software engineer. Um, and the more time I spent doing my classes, the more I realized that sort of computer science splits into two parts. There's the part where uh, you're hacking and you're writing operating systems and you're worried about security and networks and all these things. Uh, and I found those to be like really dirty and uh, sort of like... I didn't want to like touch them, or like when I was forced to like write programs for to make your operating system run, I was like very disgusted by the things that I had to do. Like it just seemed like a big mess that has no reason to work at all. And then the other half is the half which uh, I later figured out was unified by mathematics. So there's designing algorithms, designing programming languages, understanding. Um, like how machines might learn and all these things. And so as I started to take all these classes, I realized those were the ones I liked. And so I eventually switched over to math and decided that I liked math enough to do it uh, as a career. And so I went to go get a PhD, and here I am. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, actually now, like, I'm in a math program, but now I study theoretical computer science. So I've sort of come almost full circle. Um, and yeah, but theoretical computer science is still all just math, right? I'm just coming up with models and proving theorems and stuff. So I don't actually write computer programs in my day-to-day -day work. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. <coughs> Could you talk a little bit about um, something that has surprised you about in your graduate studies, something that you just didn't really expect, but um, that you like wish that you'd known before going into it? Um, like good things or bad things? Any of them, really. Any of them. I mean, yeah. I, was, I was very surprised. So when I s signed up to do a PhD in math, I thought everybody was going to be weird, right? Like, you think math people are weird. But like, uh, it, it could just be, I mean, I've now I've seen many, many departments. And I think my department at UI Chicago is a little bit uh, unique in that it's very social. And so like, like, people want to work together. Like, nobody is off by themselves scribbling on a napkin but you're you know, with your friends drinking beers, scribbling on a napkin, and so it's a little bit, uh, I mean, and like they're all like normal people, so I thought it would be very strange to work with mathematicians, but they're actually great. Um, and yeah, so, so I don't know, I mean, I guess it didn't matter whether or not I knew that going into it, but it's, it definitely surprised me. So if, al if algorithms can prove many of the problems we have in society, if you link all those algorithms together, could they describe the universe almost like, so in other words, could the universe be a one big program? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there, there are some people who believe that and would argue it. Um, and maybe if we understood things like physics a lot better, then we could write such a program that would model the universe. But right now, like even if you look just at like the physics of very small atoms, we, we still don't really have any idea how these things work. Um, uh, at least we have a bunch of theories that are competing, and they all disagree with each other, and they all disagree with 
the regular physics we're used to. So sort of all the different physical theories at different scales don't agree with each other. And so we couldn't really write an algorithm that would unify all these things until we have a unified understanding of the physics. Um, and I guess the question is maybe you could use algorithms to, to understand the physics in the first place. And people are doing that. Um, but yeah, so, so in theory, maybe you could. Um, but I don't know if it will happen during any of our lifetimes. Yeah, I guess that's the question, right? Did God create the universe, or did God create the algorithm that makes the universe run? <laughs> I don't know. This is, yeah. Yeah. Um, just today, what do you think is the most um, useful application of an algorithm in any part of society at all? Yeah, I guess it depends on what's useful. If you want to know what makes the most money, then it's definitely these industry applications of figuring out how to make your box just a little bit smaller to ship books. Because most of our money goes into this, like shipping things and manufacturing and all this, and very small improvements, which is sort of what we study in algorithms is. Then the most beneficial to your line of work in terms of theoretical computer science, which is the most beneficial algorithm that has surfaced in the recent years? So actually, this multiplicative weights update algorithm that I described, uh, in like the last like five years, people have started to realize that this is like a unified thing that we should be teaching undergrads along with all of the basic things that we teach in computer science. So this is probably actually one of the most important recent algorithms. Um, I'm trying to think of some other good ones. Yeah, um, I mean, sort of the difficulty is that um, we don't necessarily just study algorithms; we study the problems. And like the, the big results in computer science are the kind that say, um, if you're only allowed to use this many resources, then no algorithm can solve this problem. Right? And so these are like the things that will get you prizes in computer science. Uh, it's somehow, if there is an algorithm to solve a problem, it's usually easier to find it than it is to prove that no algorithm can solve the problem. And so I think most of the work is not spent on finding new algorithms, but proving hardness for algorithms or for problems. That sort of makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Once you have your doctorate, do you plan on working at a big company um, that does all that shipping stuff, or do you see yourself teaching? Um, what do most uh, people with a doctorate do afterwards? Yeah, so, so most people with a doctorate probably go to work, actually, um, <laughs> You might have heard this, that the National Security Agency is the number one uh, employer of mathematicians in the world. So uh, I'd say the highest likelihood is that I'd go, work to, go to work at the NSA, but I don't want to work at the NSA. So this would only be if I chose my job randomly. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, a lot of people will go to like work at places like Google or Amazon or IBM or Intel and do solve manufacturing problems. Um, right now, for me, everything is on the table. So I'm looking at teaching jobs. I'm looking at staying in academia. I'm looking at um, some big industry companies, Amazon. I know some people at Amazon who want to hire me. Um, and I've started talking with some startups. So like, I just had a phone call the other day with some person in Silicon Valley who has this startup that does something cool. So <laughs> he wants to hire me. <laughs> and at Moraine Valley, we have many exactly. PhDs in mathematics. That's true, yeah, teaching, for sure. Other questions? I'll throw out the thing I wanted to throw out, and then you can respond and see. The thing that it fascinates me is um, in chess, the big deal that was made when Big Blue, I think, right, beat mm -hmm. Kasparov, like finally computers beat a human at chess. But one thing that people don't know is after that, a whole new kind of chess was invented, which is 
computer-human team-up versus computer-human, and they found that humans working with computers are actually more effective, they're better at playing chess mm -hmm. than a computer alone or a human alone, which I thought was just amazingly fascinating because of the intuition of the human, but also the raw computing of the, yeah. of the computer. The human can help the computer say, oh, don't look at that, direct, that part of the possibilities, because I know those are a bust just from playing a lot. Right. Um, I actually, I think I heard another tidbit recently that they, they realized that like the key move that Deep Blue made in that chess tournament in the deciding game was a bug in the software. <laughs> so that's awesome. That's pretty interesting. Yes. Evolution. Okay. <laughs> Other questions? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. SLI librarians, they can help you find it. Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, if there's no other questions, Keith, do you want to add anything? Okay, round, yeah, round of applause. Okay. Yep, and thank you.